0: So, I'll start this morning with a confession. I wonder each week, whenever I'm trying to come up with a sermon title, just how many of you look to see what the sermon title is on Sunday mornings. And when I came up with this one, I was wondering just how many of you might have recognized it. I know that Britton Tommy did because there was some talk of having Andy play it as a postlude this morning. Andy, I don't know if you got that word, maybe not. The first line of a hip-hop song from the early 90s by a European band called Snap. Many of you, though, may know it from a movie that came out about 20 years ago, Bruce Almighty. If you've seen Bruce Almighty, then you know that it is about a man named Bruce, played by the actor Jim Carrey, who complains one day just a little bit too much that God is not doing a good enough Job and so God comes down as we all probably would expect God to in the person of Morgan Freeman and says, You do it. So, Jim Carrey's character is given all of divine power, all of divine authority, and therefore also all divine responsibilities for a time. Anyway, there's a montage right at the beginning once he realizes he has these powers that is set to this song, I Have the Power, at which he tries them out. He goes around the city abusing them, getting revenge on enemies, impressing colleagues, seducing his girlfriend, taking things that he wants just with the snap of his fingers. He can do whatever he wants, and therefore he does. Power does that sometimes. It tempts us to abuse it. Power tends to corrupt the British politician Lord Acton is famous for saying. Great men are almost always bad men. In the early 1970s, a psychologist at Stanford University decided to perform a study to see how temporarily assuming societal roles might affect different individuals. So he put an ad out to the students on campus telling them that they would be paid well for taking part in a long-term study. Seventy-five students applied. This psychologist screened them for the most well-adjusted, mentally and emotionally healthy amongst them. After screening, he chose just about two dozen to take part in the study. On a random basis, he then took those two dozen young men and divided them into two groups, randomly. Over the next two weeks, they were told one group would pretend to be guards in a prison and the other group would pretend to be prisoners. They'd already built a mock jailhouse in the basement of the psych building, and so the next day, the prisoners got arrested on campus. They were brought in, fingerprinted, assigned inmate numbers, dressed in jumpsuits, And introduced to their new roles. The same was done for the guards. They too were given uniforms, including mirrored sunglasses and wooden billy clubs. They were shown around, shown where their break room would be. They were informed what their shifts would look like that they would work, three shifts a day, eight hours each. And so it all began. Instead of two weeks, the Stanford prison experiment barely lasted six days, and in all honesty, it probably should not have been allowed to go on for that long. Within the first 24 hours, the guards, who, if you remember, just a day or two before were normal college students randomly assigned to this group, had begun abusing their power to the point that the prisoners— Their classmates complained and then protested. The guards retaliated to the protest, removed the mattresses from the prisoner's cells, subjected several of them to solitary confinement, even stripped some of them bare in order to humiliate them. 36 hours in, one inmate, number 8612, had a mental breakdown. So he was excused from the study. The next day, Prisoner 819 broke down as well. And within 48 hours of that, the prison guards had abused their powers so severely that the entire thing was called off. Tellingly, I think, when Philip Zimbardo, the Stanford psychologist, Who ran this experiment when he finally wrote a popular book reflecting on what he learned? He titled that book The Lucifer Effect. I think it's safe to surmise that Zimbardo had this morning's Matthew lesson about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in mind when he decided to title his book The Lucifer Effect. The story of Jesus' temptation by the devil is told right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, which means that it comes right on the heels of Jesus' baptism. The story that validates his identity, his authority, and his power as God's Son. It's been six weeks since you and I celebrated the baptism of the Lord, but in Matthew's gospel, these two stories sit cheek to jowl. When Jesus was baptized, Matthew tells us, Just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And a voice from heaven cried out, and said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then, Matthew tells us, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. At this point, I need to flag something about the standard English translation of the story that Marshall just read for us. I can feel the excitement in the room. I know that y'all come here on Sundays to hear the minutiae of translating Koine Greek, so just try to hold it together for a moment. In most of our Bibles, the tempter starts out by saying to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the Son of God, use your power and authority to do all of these things. But that, as it turns out, is not quite right. In the original Greek, the better way to read this sentence isn't if, but since. Since you are the Son of God, the tempter says to him, turn these stones to bread since you are the Son of God. Too often this story gets read as Jesus being tempted to prove his identity, but his identity has already been established. This is my son, the beloved. So no, the temptations that are here are much more sinister than we typically think because, and this is the key to it, because they are grounded in the truth. Look, the tempter says to him, you are hungry. You have been out here for 40 days. Make bread for yourself out of these stones, son of God you have the power. You know you do. And he does. He does have the power. So the tempter is not wrong. And as we all know, he will use that power later on to make bread. Another story in Matthew, another account of Jesus again out in the wilderness not so long from now he will take two fishes and five loaves and he will multiply them so as to feed thousands and thousands of people so the tempter is not wrong As it turns out, all three of Jesus' temptations are grounded in some aspect of who he really is. They are even grounded in Scripture. The tempter quotes Scripture at him. Do these things, Son of God. You have the power. Do these things. You have the authority. It's written right here in your holy book. What could possibly keep you from doing them? This, my friends, this is temptation. It's not just to do something that is wrong, to lie or cheat or steal. It is instead to take something that is true and that is good and to abuse it. To take something true and good about us and to use it wrongly, to weaponize it, to be selfish with it. You're the son of God. He says to Jesus, Turn these stones to bread. Leap from the top of the temple, trusting that you will land softly amongst the crowds below, and they will bow down at your feet just like they should. You are the prison guards, young men. You have been imbued with the authority of the system. Therefore, what else should you do but maintain order above all else? And temptation can be as big or as little as we like. One of the things that Rebecca and I are watching right now is a show on Netflix called Jenny and Georgia. It's about a young, single mother with a teenage daughter who's just moved to a small, wealthy New England town. A quick note, if it sounds a lot like another TV show on Netflix called Gilmore Girls, it's not quite like that. So fair warning. Anyway, just before Halloween, the teenager, Jenny, who's new to town, doesn't really know anybody finally finds herself included in a circle of friends. The girls decide that they want to do a group Halloween costume, and all of a sudden they turn to her and they ask, Jenny, what do you think? What should our theme be? In that moment, you see her look around the circle and finally included, finally popular, finally valued as a friend like she's always wanted. You see her realize that she has just been given a great gift. And then you see her choose a costume idea that will very intentionally exclude one of the other girls. If it sounds trivial, if it seems to you like a small abuse, then let me gently suggest that you might have forgotten what it's like to be a teenager and find yourself intentionally excluded, or to be a teenager and realize that you have that kind of exquisite power over one of your peers. To be fair, it's perhaps not as egregious as the Stanford prison experiment, and it's certainly smaller than the temptations that Jesus endured. And yet, such is the nature of temptation. It comes to us where we are, as we are, large, small, old, young, tempting us to use something of ours, something that is good about us, a quality, a power, an authority, an ability, a responsibility, perhaps, in a way that is wrong or in a way that is evil. Since you are this, it tells us. Go for it. And it's not wrong, but it is a liar. In this story in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness have ended. And he endures the temptations so that Satan leaves him, we are told, elsewhere, until a more opportune time. At the end of our 40 days, at the end of this season of Lent, we will see Jesus come face to face with that more opportune time. As he's betrayed, arrested, tortured, and crucified. If you are who you say you are, the crowds jeer at him, then save yourself. He is able to fight off that temptation as well. Thank God. Between now and then, however, let us all continue to pray as our Lord taught us asking that we ourselves might be led not into temptation, but delivered instead from evil. Amen.